Good morning. Welcome to The Story Church. And my name is Eric. I'm really happy to see you. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. If you're new here in the museum district, just uh, let us say a special word of welcome to you. Thanks for giving us part of your weekend, part of your Sunday morning. I know it's a big deal. And so if you're looking for a place to connect and not just see a show on Sunday mornings, but to really connect and have strong, vital relationships that push and challenge you and stretch you and grow you, that's what we're all about here at The Story, and so we would love to get you connected beyond just this Sunday morning thing where you all are all facing the same direction. One of my favorite pastors used to say, circles are better than rows, and uh, that means we're better in small groups. That's where we really grow together, and so we'd love to get you connected. Just uh, see somebody at the Connect table afterward or shoot us an email, and we'll make that happen. Um, I want to say a word of welcome to our Timber Grove campus as well that's tuning into this message. Um, so hey to our friends at 8200 Washington Avenue. Y'all say hi. All right, and we're so glad that y'all are part of the story. As always, we are one church in two locations, and we also have our online campus that's joining us from all over the place, so thank y'all for tuning in today as well. Real quick announcement, as summer is upon us, the private schools, a lot of private schools are already out for the summer, public schools, um, a little ways to go for public schools, uh, but uh, summer's almost here. We are branding this summer, summer of 2023, as the story, uh, the summer of Love at the Story Church, all right? The summer of love, all right? Some of you hippies are like, I remember the summer of love. This is different than that one, okay? <laughs> summer of love at the Story Church. Uh, what that means is we're going to spend seven or eight weeks this summer preaching and teaching on Sundays about modern dating and romance, relationships and marriage, and uh, even sex and intimacy and things like that. Um, the Maybe God podcast team uh, maybe God is a, sort of a, an arm of the Story Church. I'm a host of that podcast. Check it out if you haven't already. We are putting together two full-length new episodes about the world of modern dating, which can only be described as an abject nightmare for most people that are in it. And so as we have been preparing these episodes, it's occurred to me that single Christians, man, need the church to do more. We, you just need the support of your churches that married Christians can often rely on, but single Christians sometimes just fall through the cracks in a way that isn't right. And so we started thinking, what else can we do? And we came up with this crazy, wild-eyed sort of idea that we are calling Operation Matchmaker. Okay? Op I know, I know. Somebody went, oh my gosh. Okay, so Operation Matchmaker <laughs> will be an application-only process by which Houston singles, Houston-area Christian singles can apply. Um, the deadline is coming up June 2nd. You can apply by visiting maybegodpod.com slash matchmaking. They're leaving. They're too young anyway. Just not, they're not, they're, it's not applicable, all right? So you must be of age to be a part of the, of the matchmaking experiment. Now, I, yours truly, will be matchmaking at least one lucky couple through this uh, uh, application process and be sending you on at least one date. Now, I'd love to, I'd love to make more matches than that. I've always dreamed of this uh, sort of power. So I'm going to be doing that um, <laughs> over the summer. Now, um, not all couples, not all people will be, will be chosen or set up, right? So we're trying to give single Christians in Houston more opportunities to connect and make more meaningful relationships and maybe even find the one. Who knows? So we're planning two, the Maybe God team is planning two singles-only mixers in the Houston area later this summer. Um, so uh, you, you'll get all kinds of opportunities to meet other singles. You must be, this is important, in order to apply for the matchmaking 
Summer of Love, you must be single. <laughs> it should go without saying, but never underestimate the capacity of human depravity, <laughs> okay? So you must be single, you must be Christian, and you must live in the Houston area. That's it. And you must be of age, all right? I'm going to add that one. You must be of age. <laughs> and, uh, and so you can visit maybegodpod.com slash matchmaking for more information or to submit your application. I have been told that we have uh, an imbalance, let's say. Uh, significantly more women have applied so far than men. So men, this is your chance to be a big fish in a small pond, kind of. So make it happen, guys. Uh, single guys, get those applications in and, and women too. If you're not single, but you know people that are, that could really benefit and would love something like this, this isn't just for the story church. It could, it could extend to other churches and other Christians uh, that belong elsewhere. So let's make this happen. It's going to be a great summer at the Story Church. All right, pray for me. If anybody knows a lawyer, I need a good, like, disclaimer or some kind of a waiver document that could be, uh, that could get me off the hook in case things go terribly wrong. But uh, <laughs> hoping for the best. Okay, so today, here what we're talking about today is uh, baptism. This is our uh, part three of four in our series called Down to the River. This is a series that is all about the power and purpose of baptism, what baptism is, what it isn't, etc. So for this part of the series, we are tackling a topic that's tough to teach about. It's not really a tough topic to sort of talk about casually or, to, or maybe to lecture about. It's a tough topic to preach about, all right? So you have study guides, and I always say this, but I mean it especially today. You're going to need these study guides to help you get through today's message because this is going to be a lot. If your attention span is short, I encourage you just to breathe deep, get that oxygen in that brain, and stay with me because this is going to feel a little more luxury at times than, uh, than most of my messages do. The topic we're tackling, the question we're asking today is why do we baptize babies at the Story Church? Now, this is something we've gotten a lot of questions about over the years, and usually when there's an issue that a lot of people ask questions about, I'm quick to preach about it because it excites me to hear people's questions. This topic I've never once preached about, even though we've had a lot of questions about it. Why? It's hard to make a sermon out of it, maybe, or maybe it's just a little scary because there's really two camps in Christendom today, in the church today. There's kind of two camps of baptism, and they don't overlap. And so you try to make everybody happy, you make nobody happy, that kind of thing. And so it's better just to not talk about it. That's been my approach, at least in terms of preaching. But I want to resolve that today. I want to make it right. So we're going to talk about infant baptism, why we baptize the babies here at the story. Now, if you were raised Baptist, like Southern Baptist, or like non-denominational, which most of those are Southern Baptist, uh, <laughs> if you were doctrinally, I mean, like it's very similar usually. If you were raised in a church like that, you probably have this sort of um, ingrained idea that the only way to baptize someone properly is to baptize them as a, an adult believer, or at least a believer of age. They can be a child, but they have to be beyond the age of reason, right? So that's usually seven or eight years old. That's called believer's baptism. And some of you have that so ingrained in you that when you came to the story and saw it's baptizing babies, you were like, is this even a church for me? Like, is, can I stay here? Like, but you stuck it out. You kept coming to this weird church that baptized babies. And I applaud you for that because there's no such thing as a perfect fit when it comes to churches. And we're going to have minor differences here and there. And in my opinion, this is one of those things we can differ about and still be in unity together. 
Now, on the other hand, if you were raised Methodist, Catholic, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, other sort of mainline denominations, you probably, or Anglican is another one, you probably have ingrained in you this idea that it's okay or even um, preferable. That's not as strong a word as I want to use. It is, it is strongly encouraged for that Christian families baptize their babies. And when you came to the story, you saw us baptizing some babies and dedicating others, and you were like, wait, we can do that? Like, why are, we, why are we not baptizing all of them? Or why are we baptizing some of them and dedicating others, right? So, so thank you for sticking around too. If you've always gone to churches where all the babies got baptized and here it's different, you stuck it out and I applaud you for that. But why do we baptize some babies and just dedicate others? Well, the fact is some babies are just better than others. I'm just kidding. That's not it. <laughs> That's not it. Okay, erase, delete, delete, delete. Okay, uh, the fact is that we encourage believing parents to enter into a process of scriptural discernment, to search the scriptures, to find what the Lord is leading them to do, to talk to their Christian leaders about this, and then to, you know, in counsel with our church leaders, our pastors, to come to a decision about the, their child, their family, etc. And so some of our families come to the conclusion that they want their children to be baptized because that's, that's what they find in Scripture. That's what they think makes sense. Some families come and say, we want to wait on the baptism thing until our kids are older. We'll do the dedication deal for now. And we bless and celebrate both paths. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's the coward's way out because you're just trying to please everyone. Let me tell you in no uncertain terms that there's no such thing as pleasing everyone. The path we have chosen pleases no one, and we take heat from believers' baptism fundamentalists and infant baptism fundamentalists, right? Believers' guys are like, stop baptizing babies, and infant baptism people are like, stop dedicating babies, right? And so we're trying to thread a needle here, and the question is, are we wimping out? Are we sidestepping an issue that's biblically clear? Or are there good reasons biblically for holding our disagreement in tension together? And so that's really the, the question is, how should we, as believers, uh, faithful believers who are searching for you know, the truth of Scripture, what should we do when we as believers disagree on something that isn't clearly resolved in Scripture? Now, if you're really a fundamentalist about one of those two sides, you say, well, it is resolved in Scripture. I don't, I don't think this one is, guys. And that's okay. Not everything that we deal with today is completely resolved in Scripture according to the, the letter of God's Word, all right? So what do we do when, when there's disagreement? Well, the first generation churches, like the first iteration of Christianity, they were dealing with the very same thing on different issues, but they were reporting back to their leaders like Paul saying, look, these guys are eating the craziest things. These guys are going to the new moon festivals. These guys are like, you know, it's all kinds of, all kinds of issues that, that really were tearing the church apart. And when Paul wrote back, he made clear there are some things that the word of God's clear about and that we should avoid disagreement on. We should be clear about. But other things, when the Bible's not crystal clear, we can 
try to work together on. Like in Romans 14, the passages in your study guides, I encourage you to read those alone or together in your groups, those verses, where Paul makes pretty clear that if an issue isn't clearly resolved in Scripture, Christians should try to work through our differences together, period, and remain unified. Many, many issues that Christians fight about today are made clear in Scripture, and we fight about it anyway. Um, And in those cases, I think we should always be faithful to the Word of God and not to our feelings or our emotions or social trends or anything else. But in the case of infant baptism versus believer's baptism, I don't believe we have absolute confirmation in the Scriptures one way or the other. So whichever side you land on in this issue, it is incumbent upon you to tread lightly and not to pass too much judgment on those with whom you disagree to the extent that you're just like praying for the lost souls of these heretics who just don't baptize right, right? Which has happened in times past. Both sides have gotten pretty hostile toward the other at certain points in history, okay? And that's not the way of Jesus. Mutual respect in these instances is the way of Jesus. Now, cards on the table for the Huffman family, okay? I fully believe in the efficacy and the power of infant baptism. That's why we do it, all right? Fully believe in it. Pastor Gio and I got together when we had our first child, who's sitting here, all grown up, and she was so tiny then, and oh, it was so adorable, and we were like, what are you going to do with this baby? And I was inclined to have this baby baptized. Gio was not. She grew up in a different tradition, but we talked about it. We discerned it. We read the scriptures together. We talked to Christian friends together, and in the end, she was right. Okay, so what we did is... We decided to wait on the baptism thing, and and our daughter was baptized when she was seven years old. It doesn't mean I believe any less in the power and efficacy of baptism. I'm just saying these issues are tender and personal and should be discerned carefully, family to family. Today's question is all about why we do baptize babies, not why why we don't or whatever. So I'd like to offer a brief and biblical defense of infant baptism, all right, so I know It's exactly what you hoped you would come to church and hear about today. Everyone's exhilarated and titillated. So here we go. Let's dive in. All right. Over the years, I've had the great privilege of baptizing hundreds of your babies. Hundreds of your babies at the Story Church. And there is no higher honor. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. But the question is often asked, I think, sometimes quietly, What is really happening when we baptize babies? Are we doing something meaningful or is this just cute? Is this just a nice reason to get dressed up and put our boy in a dress that his grandpa wore or something and and take a bunch of pictures and then go to brunch? Is that what we're doing or is there something more? Is there something more? Well, I believe there's something much more happening when we baptize babies. And I believe it's a sacred time for families and parents, to extended families to come together and celebrate the newest member of their family. I believe it's a sacred opportunity for the local church to pledge our commitment and our part of the covenant, which is to surround this baby and this family with love and support and prayer and accountability until this baby is raised to know Jesus. And we pray that one day this baby that was baptized in our presence would, by the grace of God, come into a saving relationship with their Savior, Jesus Christ. So at baptism, that's what we promise to do. 
We promise to do everything we can to introduce them to the one in whose name they are being baptized. Now, most of the babies that I've baptized over the years have received it fairly well. Most of them have been friendly. Sometimes they're sleepy or just asleep, and those are the best ones. They don't wiggle, and they're easier to baptize. But then once in a while, I'll run into a little bit of a problem child, let's say. You know, it's like my friend Mac was not happy with this baptism, and I've had my share of kids that were just freaked out by this tall, weird-looking, Waldo-looking, spiky-haired-looking <laughs> pastor that was grabbing them all of a sudden and pouring water on them. I get it. But at the same time, I think we might be raising an entitled generation in a way. I think if they only knew, if they only knew how lucky they are to have parents at the Story Church instead of the Eastern Orthodox Church, where they still to this day baptize babies like this. Every time I watch it, I'm triggered even more. Like, what is happening to that child, all right? I hope one day when Matt grows up, his parents show him that video, and he comes and thanks me for being so gentle <laughs> at his baptism. Now, everybody does it a little different, I guess. But those who oppose baptism are often quick to rightly point out that the Bible never explicitly tells us to do that or even the way we do it, you know, here locally. The Bible never says you should sprinkle your babies with water and baptize your babies. It's true there are no clear examples in the scriptures of a child or an infant being baptized. We just got to own that, even if you're an infant baptism person like I am. Like, you got to own the fact that there's no examples in scripture of that happening and no clear instruction for that to happen. There are five or six instances in the New Testament where entire households were baptized together. And oftentimes people on the infant baptism side will say, well, see, see, there must have been kids in those households. So, ha, it's like, ah, it's a reach. It's a reach. Let's be honest. That's a reach. It never says there were kids that were baptized in those households. And so we shouldn't go out of our way to make arguments that aren't there, right? Now, um, when people who oppose infant baptism make this argument, though, while it is compelling... I don't think that argument about it not being in the Bible is the mic drop that believers' baptism people think it is. And here's why. First of all, it's because there's lots of other things in the Bible that the Bible, uh, let me say this, there's lots of other things that the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us to do, but that we, as a faithful church, do anyway. Right? I, I could list them. It's just, it would take forever. Lots, lots of little intricacies that we do as a church, lots of ways we do communion, lots of ways we worship on Sundays, lots of ways we get baptized with clothes on instead of naked like they did in the Bible. Lots of ways we've decided to do things that aren't explicitly spelled out in Scripture. And we should be very careful to use this sort of argumentation because we should recognize that people use this kind of argumentation. Well, the Bible never says explicitly this. People use that argument to try to get around doing what the Bible says to do and do whatever they want to do instead. Like people do that all the time. From all the like hot button issues, well, I've heard people say, well, the Bible never says that abortion is bad. And so the Bible doesn't really seem to have a bone to pick with abortion. And so I can believe what I want about abortion. Well, that's, it's not quite that case closed of an issue, right? Just because there's not those three words in that order in the Bible. Sometimes when the Bible isn't explicit about something, we have to ask not just uh, whether it's explicit, but why it isn't explicit. 
So there are more than one, there's more than one answer to that question. Why is something not made explicit verbatim in the scriptures? It's not always just because the Bible doesn't have an opinion about that. In other words, there could also be implicit assumptions made on the part of Bible authors and throughout Bible times that are conveyed through the scriptures. Was Jesus, as I've been told, was he completely silent on the issue of, let's pick another hot button topic, right? I'm not picking on these, but was he silent on the issue of same-sex marriage because he didn't have an opinion on the issue? Or was he silent on that particular issue because there was a long-standing biblical tradition, there was a long-standing belief system on which he stood that he didn't disagree with or reject, and so he had nothing more to say or add to it. You know, like there are some things that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture are implicitly there, and so it's up to us to do our homework. So in today's message, for the purpose of this sermon, we should be willing to ask, why does the Bible say nothing about infant baptism? And to be clear, the Bible says nothing either in the affirmative or the negative about infant baptism, about baptizing children. Is it because, I think it's one of two things, is the Bible silence on this issue because baptizing babies is explicitly unbiblical, or is it because baptizing babies is so implicitly biblical that it didn't need to be made explicit? That's the choice. And I think it's a fascinating study of Scripture, a fascinating thing to think about, even if it's not something that maybe we think about every day. Okay, so to really get at this question, let's go on a journey together. This is through the Old Testament first. Let's go to Genesis, to the beginning. Genesis chapter 17, the subject of this summer's church-wide Bible study, Abraham, or Abram, as he's gonna be called in this passage. Genesis 17, verse three to 12. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations, No longer will you be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. And here's here's the word. I will establish my, say it with me, covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. How do we keep that covenant? Every male among you shall be circumcised. You you are to undergo circumcision. Abraham was a grown man, but he was sort of being ushered into this new covenant at the time, which we now call the old covenant. But as an adult, he had to be circumcised as an adult. Everyone after that would be presumably circumcised as a child. Let me get to that. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant Between me and you, circumcision, the sign of the covenant between God and his people Israel. For the generations to come, every male among you must be, who is eight days old, must be circumcised at eight days old. Okay. Hang in there with me. This is about to get weird for just a few minutes, okay? I know nobody here uh, hoped that Pastor Eric would talk at length about circumcision this morning, but here we are, okay? Now, in this passage, God established as a sign, the sign of the old covenant with Abraham, the uh, ritual of circumcision um, to mark the male uh, heirs of the covenant. 
Now, this ritual, which involved cutting a piece of very delicate piece of skin from uh, every Israelite male, was meant to signify, I've heard it say it was just about health reasons, not really, no. It was meant to signify the way that God was separating or cutting off his people Israel from the rest of the world, setting them apart for his purposes and his will to save the world through them, which he has done. He has now offered salvation to the whole world through the people called Israel. That was the plan all along, and this was the mark of that covenant. And for thousands of years, before Jesus ever walked the earth, for thousands of years, Israelite men, Israelite people, the the Israelite family and tribe, they all practiced this ritual of circumcision on the eighth day of every male child's life. And the girls and women were also seen to be under that same covenant, but by virtue of their relationship to a circumcised Israelite male, their father, their brothers, their husband, their sons. This was the sign of that covenant. But what's interesting to me here, and I'll explain why, what's really interesting to me here is that nowhere in the Bible does God say or even indicate that, hey, guys, you know what might be nice is if you would just hold off on that circumcision thing until this boy can grow up and develop a mind of his own. He can go to school. He can read a book, he can, he can ask his questions, he can decide for himself how he wants to identify as a, a person of age later in life. Maybe we should respect him enough to just not mark him as a child, not claim him as part of the covenant, and then he can make up his mind later. Never does the Bible say that, although this is the sign of God's covenant throughout two-thirds of the Bible, okay? So I think it's interesting to say the least, all right? Instead of that, what God does throughout the Old Testament is command that these babies of Israelite families, faithful Israelites, be circumcised on the eighth day specifically. That's why Jesus was circumcised in the Gospel of Luke chapter two. Remember the Gospel of Luke? You ever read it? We just spent like a year on it. Um, The Gospel of Luke chapter two, uh, Jesus was circumcised on his eighth day on the earth, okay? now question, obviously, is what does circumcision have to do with baptism? Why are we talking about this weird subject? Well, maybe it's becoming clearer as we talk this through, but in the the New Testament, God established a new covenant with us in Christ by his blood. He established as the sign of that covenant another ritual. No longer circumcision, but baptism became the sign of of the covenant of which we are a part in Christ. Look what Jesus said after he'd been circumcised as a child and lived his life and worked his ministry and he was sending his disciples out just before he ascended to heaven. This is what he said, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you, even at the end of the age. Now listen, scholars have debated this, pastors argue this, like I'm gonna take heat for this, Uh, this idea that in, in some way or another, baptism was seen as the succession to circumcision, or maybe in some ways a replacement for circumcision, as the sign of the new covenant, where circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Okay, 
It's impossible to say that for sure, that that's what Jesus meant. But it is remarkable that Jesus being a versed, steeped in scripture, Jewish rabbi, told his followers to go out, make disciples, and baptize everybody, instead of go out, make disciples, and circumcise everybody. That would have been much more expected, much more on the nose for someone in Jesus's place in that particular context as a Jewish rabbi. But instead he said, really for the first time, anything like this was said, go out and baptize people in all nations, making disciples, teach them to obey, and all of this. So the early church looked at Jesus's teachings like this and took it to heart. And very, very early on, infant baptism, the baptism of young children became the norm. Like there's uh, historic evidence that is really irrefutable, and it's the only evidence that we have about mentions of infant baptism. There's really no evidence in uh, the historical record saying, well, infant baptism is uh, wrong or it's heretical, or there weren't councils called together to debate this issue. But as early as the middle of the second century, we have letters written by church fathers, Irenaeus, uh, Origen, Tertullian, later was Augustine, and they all mention baptizing infants and children as though it was normative throughout the church. And sometimes there's this idea, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt, that, 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 that the more historic uh, apostolic tradition is, uh, more biblical tradition is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is kind of new relatively to the scene of Christianity. Um, it really started to take root in the Reformation and, and afterward. So um, the, the early church was baptizing babies left and right, or so it would seem. Now, people who uh, stand against and don't like infant baptism will often say, and again, rightly so, that circumcision and infant baptism aren't the same thing. Pastor Eric, why are you comparing these things? They're not the same. You're right. There are important differences between infant baptism and circumcision. But I would submit to you that even the differences between circumcision and infant baptism point more directly to what you would expect from the gospel of Jesus. For example, who could be circumcised? 49% of the population, right? And the girls and women were sort of sanctified by proxy. But who could be baptized? Anyone. Boys, girls, men, women could all come and be baptized, fully included in the church on equal footing. Does that resonate with you at all in terms of who Jesus is and the message he proclaimed and the people that followed him, people that he welcomed? Does that make sense? Does that compute that he would prefer a sign of this new covenant that was so welcoming and inclusive of, of all people? Uh, maybe the, the more important distinction between circumcision and baptism is that circumcision involves blood. And it creates a wound that has to be cleansed with water. But baptism is all water. Why? Because we believe that all the blood that needs to be spilt has been spilt. No more blood needs to be spilt. That song that we sing sometimes, nothing but the blood of Jesus, is true. The blood Jesus spilled at the cross is sufficient. No more bloodshed is necessary for the atonement of our sins. And so now all we need is this gift of water because the blood Jesus poured out was enough for us to heal all of our wounds. So those differences seem to point even more to the possibility of God's plan being for 
baptism to become a new kind of circumcision as the sign of the new covenant. Now, setting those differences aside, there's also some similarities that are important to point out. Obviously, infants are the recipients of both covenantal signs. Babies both receive circumcision and baptism in these frameworks. But not all babies. It's not a free-for-all. It's not a, hey, uh, let's just uh, find a bunch of babies and baptize them. Or even like everybody that shows up and says, baptize my baby. They don't always qualify. Let me tell you why. Infant baptism as the uh, tradition, infant baptism as a reality in our church and churches the world over depends upon belief. Just like adult baptism does. That's why I'm uncomfortable with the brand believer's baptism, as though it's just one tribe that believes in believer's baptism. All baptism requires an element of faith. Just in one framework, it requires the faith of the one being baptized. But when we baptize infants, the faith of the parents is at stake, is at play. It is the channel through which children can be baptized. If parents come nonchalantly and say, I just want a cute ceremony, can we just do a private thing at home? I'll pay you whatever amount to come and do this for me and my family. I'm like, no, I'm not a puppet. That's not what the church is here for. We're not going to cheapen it that way. Like if you're all in with Jesus, just not even both of you, but just one parent is all in with Jesus and that's what you want for your kids, let's go. But otherwise, we're not here to water down God's good gift of baptism. So not all children, but the children of uh, faithful families, faithful parents living under the covenant promises of God. But the most important similarity between baptism and circumcision as two signs of two covenants is that neither one of them can save you. And this, I think, is a point of contention between the two camps that I mentioned, is that people that say they're believers, baptism people, sort of connect the moment of baptism with salvation. And for Christians like us, that, that, like me, I'll say that, that I hold on to infant baptism, it's not necessarily the case that uh, if you're baptized, you're saved, and if you're not, you're not. That's not what we're saying. When we baptize babies, we're not saying that the babies we baptized are saved and their unbaptized friends are, who knows? You know, it's, it's not the game we're playing here. It's silliness, all right? This isn't fire insurance for our kids, okay? This is something so much greater, something so much more. And Paul wrote about this in Romans um, chapter 2. I'm not going to read it, uh, but, but I encourage you to. Um, it, is, uh, it is all about um, circumcision as a sign of the old covenant always was meant to have been understood internally as a matter of the heart. And Paul's point is that there's a whole bunch of circumcised people out there that are really bad Jews, just like there are a whole bunch of baptized people out there that are really bad Christians or not Christians at all. Because those signs aren't what saves us. They are signs that point us to the only one who can. Okay, so that's a, another similarity that is so important. The only one who can save us is Christ. The only way he can save us is the amazing grace of God. And that, my friends, is the key to it all. The mystery that can unlock whatever has you imprisoned this morning is the amazing grace of God. Because maybe you've been told grace is for Christians. Maybe you've been told grace is for people that have their act together or whatever. <clears throat> I don't know how to tell you the truth of the new covenant is that grace is for everyone. And the forgiveness afforded to humanity by Jesus himself and his blood poured out on the cross is enough. It is valuable enough. It is a worthy enough ransom to 
pay all of our sins off and set us free from those debts. So any way that condemnation still exists in your life, it is you doing it to yourself. It's not God. Your slate can be wiped clean. In fact, in some ways it already has been, but if you haven't accepted it yet, and you're still living in that unforgiveness, and that's what we celebrate when we talk about the grace of God. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? Say it with me, please. For all people. It doesn't mean all people will be saved, but it means they can if they want to be. The grace that Jesus poured out on the cross is enough to bring everybody home. So that's another reason why we baptize babies. That's another reason why we want to make this gift of this sign of this covenant available to our children. And the fact is, even some of those babies that we've baptized, as much as it pains me to say it, they will walk away later in life. That's what happens. But should the reality that some of them will walk away, should that preclude us from offering this sign of God's everlasting covenant to which they belong, as long as they are under the roof of their believing parents. I don't believe it should. That's why we will continue to joyfully, wholeheartedly baptize babies and little ones at the Story Church because it's more than just some cute ritual. It's more than an opportunity to get dressed and have brunch. It's a timeless and courageous proclamation of faith on the part of the parents and on the part of the church that God's grace is already at work in the lives of our children. So friends, whatever, however the kids we baptize receive it, whether the children love it like some of them do, like this sweetheart, or whether they don't love it so much like my friend Mac. The point is that baptism is a reminder and a sign that God's promises remained true to Abraham, to every generation of his descendants, and God's promises and this new covenant in Christ remain true to you and your children and the generation after them and the generation after them and for generation to generation. God's promises remain. Finally, I'll just say, we often think about, I hear people argue about against infant baptism by saying, well, what sins have these babies committed that need to be washed away? I would encourage you to look at it a little bit differently and ask what good things have these babies done to deserve being welcomed into God's covenant community, into his kingdom. The point is we don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove anything. That's why a baby with no track record of success is just as welcome in the kingdom of God as any of the rest of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your uh, reminders today through your word. We thank you for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that has been passed down from generation to generation. Lord, there is disagreement in this uh, community, in this world, in your church, about uh, whether and how we should baptize our uh, believing people and our uh, children and infants, Lord. Help us to be gracious and tenderhearted with one another as we disagree, and help us to seek your truth above all else and to just shrink before the mystery of your salvation and your grace that is so freely afforded to us all. We pray with grateful hearts in Jesus' name, amen.